Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be looking at uh, Zora Neale Hurston's Tell My Horse. Uh, Tell My Horse is the second work of, of folklore that is included in the Library of America collection of her of her writings. Uh, it was published in 1938, um, some four or five years after Mules and Men, maybe three or four years after Mules and Men. Uh, now, while Mules and Men looked at African-American folklore in the United States, uh, Tell My Horse looks at the Caribbean, and it doesn't just look at folklore. This is a book that is kind of uh, well-known for looking at voodoo. Um, voodoo does take up a big chunk of the book. The whole second half deals with um, Caribbean voodoo, um, but the first half deals with the political, social, uh, racial situation in the Caribbean, and that's the part I'm going to focus on in this episode. We'll look at the voodoo stuff in the the next episode. Uh, now, she does intertwine of uh, folklore studies into her look at the political situation, but uh, in the Caribbean. But um, by and large, the first half is looking at like the problem of the, the Caribbean. She studies two different countries. She looks at Jamaica, which is still coming out of, I think at this point, it was still a colony of, of the British. And so it's still a part of that's that's the it, it's still coming to its independence, coming to its realization as an independent state uh, under this tutelage of the British. And so they're issue is the rise of black self-respect within the context of the British Empire. Uh, that's the first few chapters. And then the next few chapters look at the political situation in Haiti. And there we have a very different situation. Of course, Haiti got its independence in the context of the Napoleonic era, uh, the French Revolution. Uh, slavery ended in, the, in Haiti during the French Revolution as well. And out of that came the struggle for independence, which was finally achieved, uh, you know, in 19... 19- Four, I guess, was 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 when that happened. So Zora Neale Hurston's looking at Haiti a century or so after independence, and there the issue is how has this democracy, such as it was, uh, endured, and what were challenges. And here, the issue is really uh, the fact that Haiti was becoming increasingly a kleptocracy, where you have uh, various political factions, various tyrants, dictators ruling for their own self-interest rather than the interest of the overall people. So very, very different struggles uh, in Jamaica and Haiti, very, very different contexts, um, but even though they're both in the same region. Um, and then, of course, the whole second half of the book, which we'll look at in the next episode, focuses primarily on voodoo in, in Haiti. So in, in a sense, the Jamaica stuff is a very interesting prelude to what's mostly a book about the political, social, cultural, racial uh, dynamics in, in Haiti. Now, Wikipedia doesn't tell us too much about this this work. It doesn't have its own entry, unlike many of Zora Neale Hurston's um, books. Uh, it just says, uh, Tell My Horse documents her account of her fieldwork studying spiritual, cultural rituals in Jamaica and voodoo in Haiti. I, I do think that's kind of uh, limiting, and I think the Library of America editors kind of say the same thing. 
quote, part ethnography, part travel book, vividly recounts the survival of African religion in Jamaica, Obia, and Haitian voodoo in the 1930s. Keenly alert to political and intellectual currents, Hurston went beyond superficial exorcism to explore the role of religious systems in these societies. Um, and then some more introduction about what's contained in that. Her pictures that she took, those were her, her photographs, plus her recording of Creole songs from Haiti. Um, I think what both of these descriptions seem to miss is she's really, really interested in the rise of self-conscious, independent um, black voices, especially in Jamaica. In Haiti, that had already been accomplished by the revolution, but there is this ongoing struggle with political instability that uh, a rising black middle class is in, in Haiti was trying to address and come to terms with. So it, these are very political. This is a very political book. A little bit more so than I think Mules and Men. Mules and Men certainly had a political subtext that we can't ignore, but much more matter-of-factly, these are the folklore, these are the traditions, these are the stories that I grew up with that are still alive and well among black people in, in North America. And these, these rituals are really, these traditions are intertwined with true political struggles, uh, whether it's the struggle for independence and, and um, black kind of self-respect in Jamaica, or the struggle for, for some kind of stability and peace and, and alleviation of poverty in Haiti in a country torn by empire, torn by, by various instabilities. And that's another aspect of these novels is the importance of empire. Not these novels, this book. Uh, you know, this is maybe not on the surface. I mean, Zora Neale Hurston is rather conservative. I think that's one reason people... Um, didn't like her that much. I mean, she was more on the Booker T. Washington side of things, where it's really about uplifting communities from the bottom up. And, and, you know, first, you know, to get the house in order first before you struggle for equality. Uh, du Bois said, we don't need to do that because we already have that moral equality and that, and that political, the political right to that equality. So we should strive for it. And we already have that found whatever foundation is necessary in the talent 10th. Um, you know, and, you know, when I was in graduate school, I kind of didn't think much of Booker T. Washington, actually, because of this. It took many years for me to kind of appreciate this more conservative um, angle to it and understand where it's coming from. And Zerlin Anderson was part of that. So she's not one to blame empire, to blame the United States for the troubles in the Caribbean. She does acknowledge, especially in the case of Haiti, that these are political traditions built into Haiti for decades and decades, and not gonna, they're not going to be easily overcome, and they're not fully the cause of you can't just you can't just blame it on Whitey, I think, and I, I think that's an aspect of her thought that's that needs to be <clears throat> addressed. Maybe not so much in this work. We'll look at her uh, uh, articles in a, in a few episodes, twenty two or so articles. I'll do it in one episode, which go into a little bit more overtly into her politics, especially even one of her latest works was her. Was it was against desegregating schools, um, but it comes out of more of this black nationalist tradition. Uh, I wouldn't call her totally a black nationalist, but it, it's more on that side of the spectrum of of cultivating self help. Um, so anyway, I just want to acknowledge that I think this work, uh, "Tell My Horse," has a very very strong political message that's maybe not as clearly there in "Mules and Men." All right, then, let's talk a little bit about what's in this book. It's, it's in three parts. The first part's called Jamaica. The second part's called Haiti. That's what I'll look at today. And the third part, which is more than a half of the book, is called Voodoo, 
Of course, there you have a lot of appendix too, just like Mules and Men had a very long appendix. So does this one, plus a lot of photos. Most of the, I think all the photos are in the voodoo section of the of the book. So the first two are just kind of compare, compare and contrast, if you will, of, of Jamaica and, and Haiti, two of the major societies, two of the major nations in in the Caribbean. So chapter one is called the Rooster Nest, and it starts out by looking at the important endurance of the the Pokemonic Kalk is what she calls it, and the importance of that. So she starts out right away with folklore, and and um, and these traditions, these bottom up African American traditions. And yes, as the descriptions I read mentioned, uh, she thought these were African survivals from West Africa, and she really insists on that. And you know, we can go into that whole debate about how much of African culture survived, but certainly it's it's clear that in the Caribbean. African traditions survived a lot longer and endured a lot more than they did in in mainland North America and British North America. And the reason why, I'm sure I mentioned this before in the podcast, um, at least this is my understanding of it, is, you know, you had the slave trade was cut off in 1808. And even despite that, only 4% of, of transatlantic, of the transatlantic slave trade came, went to ports in British North America or later on the United States, 94%, 96% went to the rest of the Americas. And that's, well, many came from the Caribbean, so many were secondhand, but also you had a lot more local population growth, a lot more um, natural increase. In the Caribbean, where you had the sugar plantations, much more brutal work regimens, a much less balanced gender, um, ratio, you had more importation of people and people were less likely to survive into childbearing years to have families that would endure. Um, so <clears throat> that meant you had more reinforcement of African cultures in the Caribbean than you did in mainland North America, where African-Americans had to adapt more to English, to Christianity, and to those European traditions. That's the basic um argument that I've heard many times by many historians. This doesn't mean you can't trace some African roots to, you know, in music or blues or whatever you want to do, but they're much more diluted than in the Caribbean. So, uh, yeah, you know, now Zora Neale Hurston seems to think there's African traditions live and well, both in both places. She, of course, had a whole section of Mules and Men is about voodoo in North America, or I, I should say uh, in the U.S., <laughs> Um, I guess Caribbean's part of North America, right? Yeah, I guess geographically, North America includes Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. But kind of culturally, geog cultural geographers might say there's a North America, and then there's the Caribbean and Central America, and, you know, kind of separate regions. Just got to be careful what terms I use, or I'll get canceled or something. Ah, Anyways, moving on. Um, much of this chapter, The Rooster's Nest, is about race in Jamaica. She kind of gives the racial outline. But her main theme here is the rise of black self-respect in this context of British imperialism. Now, The Rooster Nest is referring to the British. The Rooster Nest is referring to the whites. And the point here, you know, roosters don't nest, right? It's hen's nest. So uh, it's the roosters that are laying the eggs and, and are creating the kind of discourse and, and creating the, the political situation in Jamaica. That's what she means by the rooster nest. But it's not, it's not fertile. It can't have its own, it can't reproduce. So at some point, the hens are going to have to take over. I, I think that's where she's going with this metaphor. 
Um, and that is symbolized in, well, this, this kind of the overthrowing of the roosters that's symbolized by the rise. Well, that's a symbol for the rise of black self-respect in, in Jamaica. For instance, here's what she writes. Uh, Jamaica is land where the rooster lays an egg. Jamaica is 2% white and the other 98% all degrees of mixture between black and white. And that is where the rooster nests come in. Being an English colony, it is very British. Colonies do always imitate the mother country more or less. For instance, some Americans are still aping on the English as best they can, even though they have 150 years in which to recover. So in Jamaica, it is the aim of everyone to talk English, act English, and look English. And that last specification is where the greatest difficulties arise. It is not so difficult to put a coat of European culture over African culture, but it is next to impossible to lay an African face over, European face over an African face in the same generation. So everybody who has any hope at all of looking out for the next generation and so on, the color line in Jamaica between the white Englishmen and the blacks is not as sharply drawn as between the mulattoes and the blacks. And she goes on with this mixed blood, uh, the color line, a, a general obsession of the Harlem Renaissance generation, to be sure, uh, certainly much stronger in like uh, the places where you had black majorities, where there was more of a kind of a social necessity in drawing lines class lines between people based on kind of shades of color and, and how much white ancestry they had and how much white culture they had. Uh, so more, more strong than in places like Virginia where you had the one drop rule defining Jim Crow segregation. So, um, but the heart here is she's trying to look for where this rise of, of, of a kind of a, what she's calling here an African identity and African self-respect that would trump and take over for the British and therefore end the end this the weird situation where the roosters are laying the eggs. The next uh, chapter is called Curry Goat and there is a mention of this curry goat feed and this feast for men that she gets invited to but by and large this chapter is about wedding traditions in in Jamaica. And I think there's kind of a the point she makes about these tradition, this wedding ritual, is it's about giving self-respect and agency to the bride. Um, you know, she she goes through kind of the steps of the different traditions, and it's it's kind of detailed. But the end is about kind of her accepting her destiny and and having that self-respect. And I think this is kind of paralleling what she's saying about Jamaica, and particularly Black Jamaica overall. Uh, quote: They be they begin to put her wedding dress upon the girl. The old woman was almost whispering to her that she was the most important part of all creation and that she must accept her role gladly. She must not make war on her destiny in creation. The impatient girl was finally roped for her wedding and she was led out of the room to face the public and her man. But here went no frightened shaking figure under a veil, no nerve-wracked female behaving as if she approached her doom. This young, young thing went forth with an assurance of infinity and she had such eagerness in her as she went. Now, just as a marriage ritual, you would say this is a successful tradition that that does take young women, girls who really are entering into this new stage of life with some um, anxiety, and then the traditions give them that self-respect. I think that's the, the best of what these traditions can do is is give people a foundation for for their identity in different stages of their life or whatever. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm just kind of speculating here. But I think there's a metaphor here for Jamaica overall, which needs to enter into its future of independence with the same kind of self-assurance as this bride does. Um, chapter three is called Hunting the Wild Hog. And this is probably my favorite chapter of this section. It's also fairly lengthy. 
compared to the other chapters, about 15, 16 pages. But here she goes to visit the Maroons of Okopang. Um, and these Maroons are, of course, runaway slaves who form their own communities. Now, this is well after slavery ended, like a century after slavery ended in the Caribbean, the British Caribbean anyways. Uh, I think 38 was the year the British ended slavery in their empire, um, 1838. So, but still these communities kind of were the first in Jamaica of black self-rule, right? These were people who ran away from slavery, lived out in the inner part of the island, away from the plantations in the hills in some cases, and formed their own societies and, and communities. And she has a lot of respect for these communities because they are examples of black self-rule um, in the context of, of, of empire, of slavery, of, of, of racial domination. Quote, the thing that struck me forcefully was a feeling of great age about the place. Standing in that old parade ground, which is now a cricket field, I could feel the dead generations crowding me. Here, were the old, here was the oldest settlement of freedmen in the Western world, no doubt. Men who had thrown off the bonds of slavery by their own courage and ingenuity. The courage and daring of the maroons strike like a purple beam across the history of Jamaica. And yet I stood there looking into the sea and beyond Black River from the mountains of St. Catherine, and looking at the thatched huts close at hand, I could not help remembering that a whole civilization and the mightiest nation on earth had grown up on the mainland since the first runaway slaves had taken refuge in these mountains. They were here before the pilgrims landed on the bleak shores of Massachusetts. Now Massachusetts had stretched from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and Okopong had remained itself. So a very a lot of kind of historical, like, tradition here i mean she's saying this is older than not just the united states it's older than you know colonial british north america it goes way way back now i don't know the full history here it seems to say before that so that the puritans are what 16 20s when they first 1630s when they first come you know i don't know how many slaves there were in jamaica in the 1630s i think at that time it would have been spanish colony i don't know how many of them ran away and formed these communities but in any case She's saying they've been there for a very long time, you know, as long as white people have been in in North America. And so it's a nation. It's it's got its own identity. And she really is inspired by this as a as a political experiment of self-rule and self-government. And I, I think she wants to see it as a model of, of of several things. One is of course the the political agency and political self-rule. One very, very important. Another is is autonomous culture and a culture that keeps those ties to Africa. She mentions many traditions here. Uh, the Anansi, belief in Anansi, or the stories about Anansi, of course, a West African um, trickster god, the three-legged horse, uh, the wild boar hunt, the wild hog hunt, which is the name of the, the chapter that she, she observes this. These are all traditions that, that go back to, to Africa in various ways, but are readapted to a new world environment, and they survive in this, cult, in this community for a very, very long time uh, by separating themselves from British rule. If, if you are a black nationalist, or if you're at least, as I said, she's sort of on the spectrum of black nationalism heading towards uh, a more nationalist point of view, if that's your point of view, then yes, there's a lot to inspire you about uh, this place, this Maroon community. All right, just a great chapter. Uh, chapter four is called Night Song After Death, and this one deals generally with West African traditions, uh, but it focuses on a death ceremony. Um, that's what the whole chapter is describing. Again, this is a work of, you know, of folklore, uh, even though, I, as I said, it's got a political 
angle to it. It's still a work of folklore. Um, you know, but she, here she makes her strongest case, it seems, that there are African survivals. Um, quote, in reality, it's an old African ancestor worship in fragmentary form. The West African tradition of appeasing the spirit of the dead, lest they do the living a mischief. Um, and she makes other points uh, throughout this, often using the adjective just African, not African-American or or you know Caribbean or something to refer to it. She sees these straight up as African survival traditions. Um, but mostly we get a description of the death ceremony, which is quite um, interesting. I, I mean, I don't know what to say about the traditions themselves. Just go read them if you're interested in them. I, I, you know, I'm not going to go through blow by blow unless I'm really moved by some of them. But, um, you know, but kind of fascinating. Uh, quote, inside the room, the old ones keep a duppy entertained with Anansi stories. Now and then they sing a little. A short squirt of songs and then another story would come. Its syllables would behave like tambour tones under the obligato of the singing outside. It fitted together beautifully because Anansi stories are partially sung anyways. So rhythmic and musical is the Jamaican dialect that the tale drifts naturally from words to chants and from chants to songs unconsciously. There was Brer Anansi and Brer Grasquit. Brer Anansi and the chattering pot. Brer Frog's dissatisfaction with his flat behind and Anansi's effort to teach him how to make stifling for it and how all the labor was lost on account of Brer Frog's boasting and gratitude. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's just a more or less a, a very detailed description of, of the death rituals, the wakes uh, for, for the dead. Um, the final chapter of the section on Jamaica uh, actually goes beyond Jamaica a little bit, and it's uh, called Women of the Caribbean. And this is, it's only five pages, but it's really a great summation of how race, class, and gender intertwined. You know, I know that's kind of the three pillars of, of kind of a lot of modern humanities. It's like you got everyone has a race, gender, a class, you know, but it's not new to realizing that these are intertwined. And this chapter really is about, you know, race, class, and gender. How, you know, your, the color line shapes your experiences, how that intertwines with your class, how white women or biracial women live objectively better lives than darker skinned women and how men are able to dominate women, you know, and all, how all these things come together. Um, some stuff is pretty horrific in this little chapter, by the way. Um, for instance, listen to this. Quote, in Haiti, the law says that a woman may accuse no man of being the father of a child unless she is married to him. Thus, unattached men who have been out for a few nights of pleasure need fear no embarrassment from girls who come to complain of consequences. Furthermore, several intelligent Haitian women have told me that a man may marry a girl, but if he wishes to do so, he can return her to her parents by simply saying, I was not the first. Then he can vindicate his honor by getting a divorce and marry the woman he prefers. So far as the discarded bride is concerned, she has no redress. She cannot refute his statements. What could she offer as proof? The marriage would have to be consummated before the husband could have grounds for his complaint. And after the bride is in a difficult position to make out a case for a virginity before marriage, it's barely possible that some girls, not really wanted as wives, but unattainable otherwise, have been traduced out of their good names in their husband's homes at the same time after uh, satiation. Who knows? And then she gives a, a case study of that. So, yeah. Uh, just just kind of a, a horrific reality, I guess, of, of how easy it is for women to be taken advantage of. 
uh, in this patriarchal society. So that does it for the Jamaica section. Part two is called Haiti. And there's four chapters here. And they're pretty much all about politics. They're, she doesn't say that much about folklore, partially because she's got the whole half of the novel on voodoo, on Haitian voodoo. So instead she focuses on the state of Haiti after um, since independence. And she focuses on a little bit on empire, but mostly on autocracy and the rise of autocracy in Haiti and the weakness of democracy. And she holds out some hope that there can be a rebirth of democracy through the rising of a middle class and educated class and a, and a self-consciously political class. But, you know, with low literacy rates, a lot of poverty, you have this political instability um, here. Now, this is true of much of the New World, much of the Americas, uh, the U.S., Less so, uh, the U.S. never had a period of dictatorship. Most of, of Latin America and the Caribbean did. I think every Latin American state had a period of dictatorship. So, um, you know, and there's a whole, there's a lot of theories, explanations on, on why that might be. Um, but anyways, this is all politics. So if you're not interested in Haitian politics and you just want to get to the voodoo, you can probably skip this section. I think it's only, how much is it? It's only 45, 46 pages, so you can skip it. But let me just briefly mention some of the major points. Uh, chapter six is called Rebirth of a Nation. Uh, of course, you got a little bit of a pun there on birth of a nation. Um, but her point here is 100 years after independence, Haiti still has these political struggles, largely due to the rise of autocracy and, and as I said, empire. Uh, I'll mention a little bit. She, again, she doesn't emphasize empire. It's in the backdrop. Um, but here's something of what she says about it. Um, but hey, she doesn't ignore. She doesn't ignore that the U.S. and France have messed up Haiti. But she doesn't see that as the primary problem. The problem seems to be, just like with, with Jamaica, the problem of establishing kind of an independent political consciousness. Quote, without the bodies on the earth, with the ex expectation of American intervention, with the prong of such a crisis in their hearts, the people moved towards the French legation. They were not to be balked. For this day and this act's amenities, national and international were suspended. The outraged voice of Haiti had changed from a sob to a howl. They dragged General Jean Vibren Guillaume Sam during the dawn of the day of the massacre, President of the Republic, from his hiding place. They chopped his hand that tried in its last desperate desperation to save him from the frenzy, from the mass frenzy outside the legation gates. She dragged him to the doors, into the court, and there a woman whose dainty head had never, ever held a broom struck him a vicious blow with the machete at the root of his neck. And so this describes this assassination, this mob assassination of this Haitian political leader. It seems it's not an uncommon thing for these people's reigns to end violently. But it's in the context of U.S. empire and the French legation and all that. Uh, it's, it's in the backdrop of it. Um, but they're just kind of neutral bystanders in all this. And, and, you know, she doesn't, again, she doesn't want to emphasize, oh, France fucked it up. She, that's not her point, really. Her point is that this are indigenous political conflicts and struggles that need to be worked out by the creation of a more conscious political class in Haiti. But it doesn't mean empire is not there and the indifference of the Europeans and the Americans is is not significant in all of this um for instance the next section the very next section of this chapter is called the plume against the sky 
Quote, they were like that when the black plume of the American battleship smoke lifted itself against the sky. They were like that when Admiral Capertone from afar off-gazed at Port-au-Prince through his marine glasses. They were so enraged when the USS Washington arrived in the harbor with Capertone in command. When he landed, he found the head of Guillaume Sam hoisted on a pole on the Champ de Mars and his torso being dragged about and worried by the mob. This dead and mutilated corpse seemed useless to all on earth except who might have loved it while it was living. But it should be entombed in marble, for it was the deliverer of Haiti. L'Ouverture had beaten back the outside enemies of Haiti, but the bloody stump of Sam's body was to quell Haiti's internal forces, who had become more dangerous to Haiti than anyone else. The smoke from the funnels of the USS Washington was a black plume with a white hope. This was the last hour, the last day, of the last year that ambitious and greedy demagogues, the substitute, bought Keiko Blaze for voting power. It was the end of the revolution and the beginning of peace. End quote. And I can't, I've really struggled here to, to disattach these because she makes it very insistent that this is an indigenous tra political transformation. Hopefully the end of dictatorship and kleptocracy in Haiti. But this imagery of the black plumes of the U.S. battleship is, is hard to separate from the political realities in Haiti. And I don't know if she can either. I, I think she's a bit struggling with this. Uh, the next chapter, chapter seven, is called The Next Hundred Years. And this is her kind of political vision for, for Haiti. Uh, she talks about class and slavery and how they evolved together in, in France and or in Haiti and how this continues to be a burden for their political development. But ultimately what she envisions for Haiti is the rise of a more self-confident nation. Um, she talks about various political leadership figures in Haiti at the time. That would only be of interest maybe to a historian who's actually wants to talk about this period. But the heart of her argument, it seems to be, is this middle-class rise. Quote, These new and vigorous young Haitian intellectuals feel that Santo Domingo's great advancement should spur Haiti out of her fog of self-deception, internal strife, and general backwardness. They're advocating universal free grammar schools, as in the United States, in a common language. As things stand, the upper-class Haitians speak French and the peasants speak Creole. Monsieur Signor rightfully contends that the barrier of language is a serious thing in a nation. It makes for division and distrust through lack of understanding. He thinks that either French must speedily be taught to all or that Haiti must adopt Creole as official language. Then there's the matter of religion. Nominally, Haiti is a Catholic country, but in reality is deeply pagan. Some of the young men are ceasing to apologize for this. They feel that the foreign Catholic priests do the country more harm than the voodoo does. Um, on and on. So then it's not clear what the answer to these divisions and problems are, but she wants this problem to come from these Haitian intellectuals who work it out in their hands and make it politically real. Chapter 8 is called The Black Joan of Arc, and this is just another kind of political vignette of a woman, Solistia Simone, uh, who she compares, obviously, to Joan of Arc. And then Chapter 9, another political vignette called The Death of Le Conte, um, and that's about uh, his how he died, another um, dictator died with the, when a bomb goes off in his palace. So again, the Haiti, Haiti, Haiti section is more of a political story of the situation in Haiti since independence and, and currently in the 1930s. And generally, we see the failure of political leadership, the Haiti becoming or, or enduring as a kleptocracy, deeply divided by class, uh, race maybe less, is imp less important than in Jamaica, because in Jamaica you have the, white, the, the British overlords and British culture being emulated, and you've got more focus on the color line uh in haiti is much more about class and power and who controls the resources 
and the struggle for a nation. And, and where is that going to come from? That's her question. So anyways, that's my thoughts on the first half of Tell My Horse. I, really important book. Yeah. Apparently this wasn't well reviewed when it first came out. I'm not sure why, um, but who's, who's to say? Who's to come for tastes? I don't know who review it, view, reviewed it. Maybe people who didn't, um, I don't know. Maybe it's worthwhile looking at those reviews. I might do that before the next, before the next episode. Anyways, uh, that's what I have to say. So if you read Tell My Horse, especially the non-voodoo sections, I think most people might skip to the voodoo stuff because that's the most titillating. But if uh, you started from the beginning and you have thoughts about the first half of this uh, very interesting book, let me know. Uh, if you have any thoughts about the situation in Jamaica, Jamaica, sorry, Jamaica or Haiti, in the early 20th century, let me know that as well. Or any thoughts about Zora Neale Hurston and her own political perspective? Um, I've really changed on her. I, I mean, I sort of always liked Zora Neale Hurston, but you know, I didn't fully realize just how much she was kind of in that more conservative political side of things. Because so it's not necessarily on the surface of, of her work. You know, when you read some of the Harlem Renaissance writers, their politics are really on their sleeves. And Zora Neale Hurston, not, not so much. But um, it's not the first, you know, black conservative voice we've come across, you know, in the Harlem Renaissance series, we looked at some of these as well. So, you know, she's growing on me a lot over time, especially because of this folklore stuff. I really um, appreciate her effort to to kind of document these traditions. So anyways, um, that's going to be it for now. Uh, I'll obviously have a lot more to say about Zora Neale Hurston in upcoming episodes. I'll finish with uh, Tell My Horse next time. So if you need got it, if you want to tell me anything, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or, or you can leave a comment on iTunes, leave a comment on Podbean or however you access this, um, let me know. Um, so that's going to be it for now. Uh, thanks for listening as always. I'll see you next time. I told her it must be the hellfire captain. Anna told her, must have be the hellfire captain. Ha, he had blue eyes. Lord, Lord, he had blue eyes. Oh, don't you hear them? A cool, cool boys keep a hollering.